perceptions of corruption or perceptions in and of themselves in the political world are in many ways as important as realities, especially when they lead to certain policy outcomes. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. My name is Christopher Starke. Today is a special Kickback episode for two reasons. The one is that we finally celebrate our 30th episode. Since March 2019, which seems so far away now for so many reasons, we were able to upload an episode every second Monday without exception. So I want to take the opportunity to thank my awesome collaborators and friends, Matthew Stevenson, Niels Kürbis and Jonathan Kleinpers. It has been such a pleasure working with you over the last year. The second reason is that we ran dry of interviews that we recorded pre-corona. So for a while now, we will be airing telephone interviews, starting with this one today. The voice you heard at the beginning belongs to today's guest, Dr. Samuel Power. Sam is a lecturer in corruption analysis at the University of Sussex. He wrote a book titled Party Funding and Corruption, which was published with Palgrave in 2020. For the interview, Niels, Sam and I all sat down in our separate living rooms and took a deep dive into party financing and political influence. At the end of the interview, we also discussed targeted online ads and how they may relate to corruption. So, without further ado, let's get started. Uh, welcome to a new episode of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. This episode, we are honored to have Dr. Samuel Power on the podcast. The way we want to start this podcast is by giving a short update on our life situation when it comes to the unusual circumstances of Corona. So first question for you, Sam, where and how are you? <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'm in Brighton, so uh, the south coast of the UK. Um, so lucky enough to when we we're allowed out for our um, for our walk, our sort of unofficial or officially about an hour's walk uh, to have a bit of seaside there to at least overlook. Um, but we're keeping well, me and my partner. We're finding a lot of stuff to do around the house and where possible kind of treating it as normally as possible. So, yeah, that's we're doing okay in terms of the coronavirus. But thanks for asking. Thanks so much for being here on such short notice. It is our first Zoom episode that we record, so let's see how that turns out. First of all, we usually start off our episodes with asking how you got interested in the topic of corruption, who inspired you on the way to the topic, and finally, how did you come to choose your PhD project, which is on party financing and corruption? Yeah, so... I, well, I can remember the first thing that got me really, really interested in corruption and thinking about maybe that I would want to study it in more detail was I watched a, a documentary about Elliot Spitzer, who uh, I don't know if either of you can remember, but he's now I think quite a forgotten figure, but was a New York City governor, I think, in the mid 2000s, who took on Wall Street and took on corruption and then was caught with various prostitutes and indulging in various acts of corruption himself. Um, and of course, if you investigate corruption and are very bullish about um, investigating corruption, then if you get caught in corruption, 
yourself, then that's quite an interesting thing. And of course, people are all the more interested in bringing you down. And this documentary was called Client Nine. um, And I thought it was really interesting. And it was an interesting insight into how somebody gets from a situation of being seemingly honourable and seemingly going into politics for the right reasons. And it all, the house of cards, I suppose, just comes tumbling down for them. And that got me interested very much in corruption. And then I was sort of at a time in my life where I was kicking around thinking about what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to do an MA. And I'd saved up for a few years to to be able to afford this and saw that at Sussex, which was the place that I did my undergraduate studies, that they had just started an MA in corruption and governance. And it struck me that I just watched this documentary about Elliot Spitzer and this MA came up. And that's how I got really, really interested in corruption in the first place. Great. And then uh, could you tell us a little bit about that MA program and how it then led you to uh, also write your dissertation about it? Yeah, so I, I I should qualify this. And this is something that I always make very clear to my students, which is that uh, I wasn't in any sense a typical academic or indeed a very good undergraduate student. I think all of my lecturers from my undergraduate course would, if they could remember me, which I doubt they could, would agree. So, so the MA that I was doing, part of the reason why it appealed to me, not just because I was interested in corruption for these reasons, was that it actually had a vocational element to it. And I thought that Corruption was a world that I could get into and that maybe that would lead on to a job in the sort of anti-corruption sector. And that's a big part of the MA. But when I got back onto the MA after having taken a few years out from academics, I realized quite quickly that I was actually a lot more interested in the academic side of things. So within that, I tried to think about what it was that I was particularly interested in, in terms of corruption, what it was that had really yeah, had had really interested me. And so this was in 2012, 2013. And there was a lot of discussion in the United Kingdom at that point, because a report had just come out about political financing, and perhaps reforming the political financing system. The political financing system in the UK is very different to the rest of Europe, and um, much more similar to the United States, although with, with some differences in that it's um, predominantly privately funded, predominantly funded by donors, by members of political parties. And there seemed to be a narrative out of these reports that were coming out on reforming the party funding regime to increase levels of state funding that if you increase these levels of state funding, then suddenly the sort of pallor would lift from Westminster, as it were, and everyone would see that politicians weren't as corrupt as we all thought they were, and everything would be fine. And it wasn't that I didn't buy that narrative, it was just that the narrative seemed a little bit simplistic. So that was what really got me interested, particularly in party finance. I think if you're interested in corruption, you're naturally interested in ways in which people attempt to levy influence that leads you to money quite quickly but what i'm also interested in is things that become kind of almost self-evident truths and not just questioning them for the sake of questioning them but kind of just asking well is that actually the case can we unpick that to a greater extent and that was fundamentally what formed my phd just the question of okay there seems to be this overwhelming narrative that state financing 
is less corrupt. And that is the solution to a perception that corruption pervades money and politics in the United Kingdom. Can we work out if that's actually the case or not, rather than just saying it? And that's what, that was how my PhD got started, really. So from being an average undergraduate student to writing a great book uh, about corruption, I think this is something that a lot of our listeners uh, <laughs> gladly like to hear, um, especially of our young up-and-coming corruption scholars. So let's jump in to the, the main contents of your dissertation and of your book, which we will link to in the, in the show notes, of course. Mm -hmm. So what was the main question that you wanted to answer, or maybe the main questions? Yes, yeah, so, so the main question I, I wanted to answer and the main question I wanted to ask, I suppose, was quite simple, and it was just, does the amount of state subsidy in a country have an effect on the type of corruption that occurs in that country? What, one of the things that frustrated me the most about debates with regards to money in politics and indeed the role of state financing in money in politics was the idea that it was less corrupt, this idea that it might be necessarily less corrupt. And it just struck me as the wrong way to think about these things because actually I didn't necessarily think that you can think about something as more or less corrupt. Actually, you should probably think about things as differently corrupt on different levels. So the, the way that I sort of frame it in the book, and I think I draw these lines sort of deliberately too distinctly, but I think that you can separate corruption analysis between people who try and distinguish between levels of corruption and people who distinguish between types of corruption. And one of the great corruption typologists, I suppose you would argue, is someone like Michael Johnston, who, who comes up with syndromes of corruption and, and talks about that actually it's much more useful to think about why corruption occurs and in what way it occurs in certain contexts than actually whether that is more or less corrupt than something else. I think the way that I put it in the book is, it might well be the case that Kenya is more corrupt than Sweden, but there's only so far that that kind of language and thinking about things in that way can get you. And in those terms, the question that I was looking at was not necessarily whether state funding was more or less corrupt than private funding, but whether there was a different type of corruption that occurred in systems with high levels of state subsidy than in systems with high levels of private subsidy. So that was the basic question I was trying to answer. Is it the case that the more state funding you have, the more there's a different type of corruption in those states than in those systems with private funding? Yeah, that's super interesting. I think uh, if you could tell the listeners a little bit more about the countries that you actually compared and the difficulties of drawing conclusions from one country that might be applicable to the other, And at the same time, without running into the danger of what you just uh, outlined, right? Like of sort of saying, like, well, is this country X more corrupt than the other? And how can we understand the specifics in that particular country and how you went about it, right? Like what, what is the methodology that you used? You mentioned interviews. How did you go about that? And what were the insights, right? Like what did you mm. take away? If somebody doesn't have the time to read the entire book, what would you want uh, our listeners to know about it? What do you think is most important? Yeah, so, so I stuck in Western Europe to, to ask these questions, and that was for a number of reasons. And it's partly to do with institutional similarity. There's lots of countries in Western Europe that share basic historic similarities. That means that if you're trying to compare regulation in particular or levels of state subsidy and these kinds of things, actually Western Europe seemed like the most logical place to stay 
for my research. And after that, it was a matter of finding countries with a high level of private subsidy and a country with high levels of state subsidy. And I won't go into the full case selection process. That's one for the, it's in the book, but not one of the main features. That's just the justification. But I settled on the United Kingdom and Denmark for my case selection. So the United Kingdom is one of pretty much only three countries in Europe that still enjoys very high levels of private funding. The other two are Malta and Switzerland. And then pretty much you've got your pick of the other countries um, if you want high levels of state subsidy. Those are the two countries that I picked. And within that, what I wanted to do was, yeah, find out what the party funding regimes looked like and then the role that corruption played. And a lot of the work in this area is necessarily quantitative and tries to draw on quantitative research and that's fine and I think all of that research answers a lot of important questions and answers them very well but what I wanted to do was try and think more fundamentally about the role that money plays and actually talk to people about the role that they thought that money played and although access was something I had to think about quite carefully, actually once you broach it in the right way, people were very willing to talk to me about that. And I think that it's a good way to look at these things because then you start unpicking and getting underneath a lot of the assumptions that we have about money in politics. So I think that if you speak to anyone about money in politics, then you don't get far before someone might say, well, this person has donated all this money to a political party. They must want something out of it and they must be getting something out of it. There seems to be a basic quid pro quo there. But actually, once you talk to people about what these relationships are and you talk to people about what these linkages are, then you sort of get behind and unpick those headline figures a little bit. And what I would say is that One of the big things that I learned from the interview process, particularly in the United Kingdom, where you're thinking about a lot of money sloshing around in the system, is that what seems like a lot of money to me and what seems like a lot of money to a lot of people isn't actually all that much money. That was a big conclusion that I had. So I would be sat there with donors to Labour Party, donors to the Conservative Party, and talking to them about why they donated all this money. And the, the way that they would talk about it was a completely different way as the way that I would talk about those kinds of money. Two examples that I use in the book, the Conservative Party, they have a group called the Leaders Group. And the Leaders Group are donors who donate £50,000 a year, and that gets you into the Leaders Group. And if you donate £50,000 a year and get into the Leaders Group, then you can go for lunch on a number of occasions with Conservative MPs, with the Home Secretary perhaps. And these linkages are quite strange and, and you kind of think, well, why, why do you do that? Surely there must be something there. And I remember very vividly speaking to one of the leaders group and he was talking about it like I would talk about a Netflix subscription, essentially. This £50,000. He couldn't remember the last one that he'd been to, but he knew it was in the past six months. He did it just because, because he had the money to do it. So why not? And once you actually start breaking down those linkages, that's not necessarily to say that these linkages are something that we want to see in politics, but it kind of starts breaking down this idea that, well, there must be something going on there because sometimes actually these these connections aren't quite as black and white as we might think. The second example, I spoke to a guy called Stuart Wheeler 
who for a long time held the record for the highest donation to a political party in the United Kingdom. We're the kind of country that has these world records. But he donated five million pounds to the Conservative Party in 2001. And I spoke to him about various other things, but why did you give the Conservative Party five million pounds? Why did you do that? And he just said in a very kind of old English way that he'd just sold his company and he'd sold his company for 90 million pounds and he'd heard that the Conservative Party were short of money and they couldn't afford, this was when the Conservative Party were in really dire straits, electorally, financially and everything else. And he, he'd heard that they couldn't afford to send certain ministers up to Scotland on a trip on the train because they just didn't have the money to do it. And he, he said to me that he thought that was jolly unfair so there's not really much difference between 90 million pounds and 85 million pounds. So why not just give them 5 million pounds? He literally said, you know, there's no difference here to my bank balance. So you sort of start getting underneath some of the broader narratives, I think, there. So that was one of the things that I wanted to achieve with conducting interviews. The other real benefit to interviews is you start seeing on the other side, you start seeing the logic behind policy decisions. And I think that was the real, the, the real finding of the book in many ways is actually what I think is really interesting about the book is that the hypotheses that I set out with, the research question that I set out with, do, do we see different types of corruption dependent on the level of state subsidy? Actually, it's a null finding, right? Um, and these things are often frowned upon, but I think they're the most interesting findings. Actually, I didn't find support for any of the stuff that I thought I would find support for. What, what I found was that you pretty much get the same type of corruption in Denmark and in the United Kingdom. And what that was, was what I call a perceived donor-based corruption. And that is that largely the kind of corruption that people think are going on is that rich donors have some kind of influence on the political process. And this is regardless of the actual level of donations in the system. Now that is interesting because it tells you something about policy, about ways in which people then try and make policy. Because when we start thinking about policy in, in the field of party funding, actually that means that you, you end up with people making very specific policies and politicians saying, we need to do something about this because everybody thinks this system is terribly corrupt, whilst at the same time saying, but it's not actually all that corrupt. But there's a problem here nonetheless, because people think it is. And that doesn't make any difference dependent on the level of state funding or didn't make any difference in Great Britain and Denmark. So then you start asking yourself, well, then if you introduce levels of state subsidy, what are you really trying to achieve if everyone still thinks the system is as corrupt as it is going to be? So then you have to start thinking about well, what is the solution to dampening these perceptions of corruption? Can you dampen these perceptions of corruption? And um, that, that was my big takeaway from the book. And I think the benefit of doing the elite interview was it helped me arrive at the, almost the answer to my question, which was, well, in these two particular cases, we find the same type of corruption. And I would posit that that conclusion would hold that actually political financing, although it's something that everyone has an opinion about, it's a relatively low interest topic for the public. And so it should be. So I think if you ask the public what they cared about the most, immigration might be there, welfare, health at the moment for sure, all those things. 
the way in which our parties are funded or the way in which campaigns are financed, I don't think we'd get anywhere near the top 20. That means that any reforms that you make are likely not to have the direct effect that you want. So then it, you have to think about the ways in which you introduce those reforms, perhaps to help and to have the effect that they want. So that was what I thought the benefit of doing the elite interview was, not necessarily at the time of choosing to do the elite interview, but certainly in hindsight, it allowed me to arrive at a, a pretty simple conclusion that actually the level of state subsidy didn't have any effect and that people broadly think that donors have too much influence on the political process, no matter what you do with the party funding regime. Great. I would like to go back a little bit to the interview that you conducted with donors because I found this particularly fascinating because I was wondering how openly did they talk about their motivations to do that? You just gave the example of this one person who gave the five million pounds. But were they talking openly about it? And the second question would be, did the word corruption come up in the interviews at all? Or did you kind of dance around it a little bit? <laughs> that, that's a good question. So we have a very, very strict ethical review process that we have to go through in UK universities. And unfortunately, I had already titled the project that I was doing before thinking about going through the ethical review process, which meant that I had to be very open with the interviewees on approaching them that I was effectively writing a book called Party Funding and Corruption. And if I'd have thought about it a little bit more in advance, I probably would have called the project something slightly different, at least as a working title, so that I didn't have to send a lot of emails and letters to donors, to politicians saying, I want to talk to you about corruption, are you up for it? Because that immediately, I think, would set alarm bells ringing. What, what I actually did was I, instead of sending emails, largely sent letters. And within the letter, I would explain that I wasn't, what I wasn't trying to do was some kind of expose where I started from the position that all politicians were terribly corrupt and I was going to prove that. What I wanted to do was get at the perception that money was, was a corrupting influence and understand more about that. And people were quite receptive to that. So within the interviews themselves, I tried not to go into them by saying, okay, so isn't this all corrupt? What's going on? Or is this corrupt? I did try and frame it in ways in which it was slightly more open than that. But there was no getting away from the fact that that's what I was looking at because I, I couldn't get away from that fact. It was on the consent forms that I got them to sign. There's literally no dancing, dancing around it. In terms of how open they were, actually, I found across the board donors, party fundraisers, people that go and speak to the donors, politicians to be incredibly open once I managed to get through the door about these linkages. I would caveat that ever so slightly with, I suspect there's probably an ever so slight self-selection process here in the probably people that are much more sensitive about that. They were the people that refused to speak to me. And a lot of the donors, for example, that I spoke to, they were never the people that were trying to get influence on the process. And I'd take them at their word on that. But they would be quite open about, not necessarily about people going out there and trying to get influence. But when I asked, so do you think there's people at these meetings, for example, of the leaders group, or indeed, if we draw an example from Denmark, they don't have exactly the same, but they have what they call business clubs in Denmark, where if you pay a certain amount of money, you get to go to dinner with ministers. So it's, 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 it's a close-ish analogue. And I would ask, 
fairly straightforwardly, do you think there's influence processes going on here? And do you think people are paying money to either try and get influence? And do you think politicians are listening to them? And they would answer those questions quite openly. And they would say, I think there's a few people here that do, but I don't think it works. And I'll give you examples of why. So the Danish case, one of the Danish interviewees that I spoke to, he would say that every business club that he would go to, I think it was someone from an electricity business, would stand up every time and say, your levies on this are way too big, you need to bring them down. But it was just a routine that essentially happened at every club and no one really took him all that seriously anymore. That's not to say that these clubs or the mechanisms of influence aren't occurring, but they were much more open than I expected about these processes. And that, that, was, that was something that was pleasantly surprising. I thought that I would get pretty much flat denials. That's fascinating because it goes into this such a subtle influence that these donations can have then maybe on political decision making later on. And I think what, what I like about the theoretical framework in your book is that you make these distinction between donor-based corruption and co-functioning corruption going into detail about different ways of influencing decision-making. And when I recall the discussions that I have with my students when I discuss these issues, is often the words lobbying come up and these words revolving doors come up, so many subtle influences, and they, they, they want to then know, is that corruption or is it not? Mm -hmm. um, and of course, the relationship is way more complex than that. But how do you deal with these issues in your book? Yeah, it's, I would say that's the most fundamental challenge of trying to study corruption and the role that, uh, the, the role that money plays, particularly in terms of politics, which is that actually lots of different people have lots of different ideas about what corruption looks like in that context. And it almost goes right back to definitions. So the way that I try and pass it in the book is that, that there's some people that actually draw the line at the access argument, that there's essentially a dichotomy between access and influence, or you have this access versus influence argument almost. And there's some people who quite reasonably draw the line at if you can pay to sit down with a politician then that is corrupt. That is in and of itself a corrupt relationship because not everyone has the opportunity to do that. And that creates inequality in the system that bypasses what we hold up as the tenets of democracy, kind of choice, representation, all these different things. And that's one way of looking at it. And if you look at it like that, and I have absolutely no issue with that, then the answer is actually very simple, which is, if we're taking the two countries that I looked at, then money in politics in Great Britain and Denmark is corrupt because that happens, okay? If you give a certain amount of money to a politician, you get a foot in the door. And that's fine, but I've always found something a little bit unsatisfying about that argument. I get that it's not particularly the way in which you might want a democracy to function. And I get that it, it's not the ideal system but I just don't necessarily buy that you can call it corruption because to me, corruption also has a sense of that there is some kind of quid pro quo there. There is something that this person is getting out of it. So 
I don't necessarily think that just because you have this access that necessarily means that equals corruption. The, the tipping point for me is always if that access leads to a specific kind of influence. Because I can think of a whole load of situations in which I have privileged access in my life to a lot of different people, but it might not be the case that I get any, any influence over a situation. Um, another couple of examples, at, at the end of the book, I try and draw a very rudimentary typology of access, where you have access as influence or access as potential influence, but then you have access as actually quite irritating. And the example I use in the book is another donor that I spoke to who, because this donor gave large amounts of money to a particular political party, almost inserted inserted themselves into into the party and attempted to maybe attempted to have certain influences but in a way that was actually quite irritating to the politicians who were trying to get on with their job and that to me actually seems less like corruption and more like a farce and i I think we need to be quite careful about drawing considering that every every particular link that we see in society is corrupt because then things just start sort of falling in on themselves Another example that I use in the case study on Great Britain is that, okay, it might well be the case that you pay a lot of money and you have this influence or or you have this access and that leads to influence. But we have lots of very open examples of fundamental inequalities in society, completely regardless of someone donating money that have some influence on the policy process. The example that I use is from Nick Clegg, who is the Deputy Prime Minister of the United Kingdom in the Conservative Coalition government from 2010 to 2015, who in his autobiography talked about an education policy that they passed, which was pretty much the result of a random encounter between Michael Gove, who was the Education Secretary at the time, and a friend that he had at school who went on to run Leon, which is a branch of sort of health food, fast food restaurants in in the United Kingdom, when they were both on holiday. They happened to be on holiday at the same place. Now, the, the, the kind of policy processes that occurred there are so much bigger than just the fact that if you give someone money, then you get to meet up with them and then that might lead to some sort of influence. And the inequalities, the, the, the sort of fundamental inequalities in the system there. So it just always strikes me that it's just far too simplistic to look, look at the idea of someone donating money that that is necessarily corrupt. I don't buy it. And I think we can do better. And in coming up with these concepts of donor-based corruption and co-functioning corruption, and then trying to think of different, different ways in which you might consider things to be corrupt, I think that's a better way of going about it than merely saying, oh, well, if this person gives a certain amount of money, that is corrupt in and of itself. It's interesting that you mention that because I think one of the main trends in corruption research is going towards networks, right? Trying to really understand how networks function, how influence is actually built up sometimes over a long period of time. And like you say, it's often not as simple as I give you some money and you give me a service in in return, right? Although I may be in the public eye, that's how we think it works. At the same time, I would be curious to hear if you came across, well, in your interviews or in your research in general, situations where you realized like 
there it becomes apparent that there is a group of people that do not have this access, that lack the access to these networks, to the potential of influencing maybe uh, policymaking. And uh, whether you at one point realized, okay, I see to some extent why people might take an offense with the fact that you need to pay money in order to just have a meeting in the first place. I don't think that there is a moment in my research that I realized that necessarily, but I completely understand why people think in that way and why I say that I think it's completely fair enough. One, one of the arguments that I make in the book is that actually perceptions of corruption or perceptions in and of themselves in, in the political world are in many ways as important as realities, especially when they lead to certain policy outcomes. So something that I try and draw on in the book is from the Thomas theorem, um, which is an old sociological theory, which states that if men see things as real, then they become real in their consequences, which, yeah, is essentially the idea that actually, if you believe something to be the case so fundamentally, then actually it doesn't really matter whether that's the case or not. The most polite reading of, for example, the war in Iraq is that George Bush and Tony Blair believed that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. And he didn't have them, but if we take them at their word, and that's a big, it's a big ask, I appreciate, they believed that he had weapons of mass destruction, so they went in. Obviously, it's a lot more complicated than that. But at its most simple, they had a belief in something, and whether it was true or not, it led to certain outcomes. And I think that once you extrapolate that and kind of think about, okay, well, if, if people believe that there's corruption in a political finance system, then it almost, it doesn't matter if there is actually corruption going on. That's why I settled on this idea that actually what we say happens in these systems is perceived donor-based corruption, because actually that's all that matters. If policy elites try and reform the political system, as I find they were doing in both Denmark and the UK, based on public perceptions that donors had too much influence in the system, it doesn't matter whether donors have too much influence in the system. They have made a decision um, based on public perceptions and those public and the fact that those public perceptions need to be addressed. And I think the very fact that the public have those perceptions is important in and of itself. So I suppose there was that moment in the research where I sort of reflected on it and thought, well, there's something going on here. There's legislative responses happening independent of the conversations that I'm having about what's actually going on. And even in the policy responses, you see the people writing the reports, the people writing the legislation, the politicians saying, by the way, we don't think this is going on, but we need to do something about it anyway. And I think that is quite telling, reflecting on your question. And one quote that I put in, in the book, actually, from an interview that I did with a group called the Electoral Reform Society, who in the UK campaigned for all kinds of different reforms to democracy. Most, they're called the Electoral Reform Society, so they want to change the voting system most, but they also are very interested in political financing. I was putting, I suppose, my point of view that I said about five minutes ago across to her, the, the head of the Electoral Reform Society at that point, and something that she said kind of made me reflect a little bit, I suppose, which was that, Perhaps the public aren't right on it, and perhaps that every donation doesn't have the effect that they might think it does, but they're at least in the right ballpark that something's not right here. And the, the fact that the, the public think that something isn't right there actually tells you about whether something is or isn't right in that situation. And I might not agree with her 100% on that, but it actually really did make me 
think about it in a more fundamental sense. And the way I reflect on it in the book is to say that perhaps we might think about the way that the public feel about donations in politics. We might think of it in terms of what what some academics have called a thermostatic model of public opinion, which is that if you ask the public about anything really to do with public policy, they, they probably don't have the right answer. But my reading of the theory is very simplistic, which is that actually the public acts as a thermostat and they sort of know when it's too hot and they sort of know when it's too cold. Much like when I get into my house, I don't necessarily know the temperature that the thermostat is set to, but I certainly know if the thermostat needs to be turned up or down. And the fact that the public have all these fundamentally and overwhelming opinions that the way in which the donations in politics work is corrupt. They might not be right about that, but they certainly know that it's too hot. And if they think that it's too hot, perhaps the thermostat can be turned down in a number of ways. I think it feeds a little bit into this notion of stealth democracy, right? That uh, people don't want to participate actively in all the decision making. They just want to get a broad overview of that things are working, or what you describe as a thermostat, and you kind of know when it's not working. And I want to go a little bit deeper into that because what I found striking in the beginning of your book particularly is when you present the table of Eurobarometer data on perceptions of bribery and of corruption within local or regional governments, but also in political parties. And it seemed, if I recall correctly, that on average in the EU, 60% of people think that political parties are corrupt. Whether they are corrupt or not is a different issue. But what do you think are the main dangers if people think that the political elite is corrupt? Yeah, well, I, I always find that data really interesting as well. And that's one of the things that I try and grapple with in the introduction, which is that actually there's all this data out there that suggests that people across the EU28, as they still are for the time being, that, yeah, across the board, it doesn't make a difference, you know, North or South Europe doesn't make a difference on development, doesn't make a difference on accession to the EU, doesn't generally, people don't particularly trust political parties. And I think that that's for a number of reasons. And I think that there, there are genuine dangers there in, in these perceptions. One of the things that I think I settle on and not entirely successfully perhaps in the book but you know they, they, there can be other books in the future is that I think that what you have essentially with political parties is two basic positions at play which is the and, and I, I, I deliver the, the the roll call of academic understandings of political parties as essential to the functioning of democracy in the book. And there's there, there's a lot of them, most famous being what, what I call the Schatzschneiderian truism that democracy is unthinkable, save in terms of political parties, which is the most, most commonly used quote from E. Schatzschneider. And you have this basic understanding that actually political parties are pretty much the only game in town. But at the same time, a lot of our research on political parties is you have, this, you have this one position, which is political parties are essential. And you have this other position, which is that actually we don't really like them, though. And we don't trust political parties. And if you go right back 
through philosophy and through through philosophical reflections on political parties. And it's something that I think uh, Piero Ignazzi did very well in his 2017 book. If you look at political parties through history, actually, as well as being essential, people consider them to be something that is not to be trusted. And I think the best example of that is in the Federalist Papers, written by John Jay, Alexander Hamilton, and James Madison. Uh, But particularly in the Federalist Number 10, where I think it's James Madison who writes that one, who outlines essentially the US mistrust of factions. And which I which I read as parties, and I and I can't remember the exact quote, but it's essentially that liberty is fire. Liberty is the end goal. The fire is what you want. Liberty is your end goal. But factions and political parties are air. Um, and if you want the fire, if you want the end goal, then you have to have the air. And without the air, the fire goes out. Now that is an understanding essentially of political parties that I think is embedded throughout much of what we might call Western European thought or this sort of basic Western philosophical thought of political parties as a necessary evil within democracy. It's that political parties need to exist, but we don't particularly like them. And that's what I think, actually, if you always ask these questions, you'll always get the response that, yeah, we don't really trust political parties, but equally, I don't think that you could have democracy functioning without them. And that's something that when we think about corruption perceptions, I don't think we can take away. And that's why when I argue in the conclusion, or I do argue in the conclusion, that these corruption perceptions based around money in politics are very likely to be baked into a larger cake, which is a general mistrust of political parties, perhaps that tells us something about the kind of reforms that we need to pursue. Because if we just think that ever so slightly fiddling with the party funding regime, as much as I love party funding and would love that to be the answer, then we're running a fool's errand. We, just fiddling with a party funding regime is not going to address the basic paradox of a political party, which is that they're essential, but they're not to be trusted. So then you need to think about, okay, Are there other ways of addressing this, I suppose, paradox? And can we design a funding regime which might help to do that? So as an academic, I don't like to just problematize. I like to come up with certain solutions as well. And my my suggestion is that, that state financing, I don't think, is a solution to corruption or indeed perceptions of corruption in, um, in a party funding regime or indeed in a polity as a whole. Having said that, that's not to say that state funding isn't a, is a bad idea or that state funding isn't a good idea. What you can try and do is introduce state funding in such a way that political parties are encouraged to actively engage with the public in a way that they perhaps don't do and in a way that might drive democratic participation. So in a lot of countries, you have state funding linked to membership. That's one way of doing it. But what I reflect on is whether it's possible to introduce state funding or or various levels of funding as a bonus for political parties to actually actively get out there and engage with civil society in a way that they perhaps don't. And if 
one, one of the unsavory things about donations in politics is, and if you speak to politicians, they'll agree. If you speak to fundraisers, they'll agree. No one hates, I don't think, actually this is a bold statement, but who, who cares? Uh, no one hates the do donations as much as politicians because it means they have, to, they have to get on the phone and they have to beg for money essentially from very rich people. And I don't think they really want to be doing that. So if you take that out of the equation and you say, right, you don't have to go to your fundraising events anymore. You don't have to go to your dinners with donors anymore. But if you want that money replaced by the state, then you have to go to, you know, local fates. You have to go, you have to actively engage with the populace. And if you can prove that you've done that, then we'll give you some, some money. Then perhaps that's a solution. Perhaps having a party that looks more representative of what the country looks like and you get certain state funding provided for those things but perhaps they can start moving the needle in a way that might be a little bit more effective you got me thinking like uh, of two things the first one was sort of this churchill quote the very famous one of democracy being uh, the worst of all forms of political mm -hmm. uh, organization uh, except for all the other ones it seems to be almost the same with political parties to some extent right like it's the necessary evil but there might not be necessarily better alternatives out there at the same time I want to shift gears towards some other work that you've done. And I think it links nicely to what you said last, because one way how political parties have tried to do that is through social media. And, mm -hmm. and you recently published a paper titled The Political Economy of Facebook Advertising, Election Spending Regulation and Targeting Online. I think there are many things I would like to ask you about it. Uh, the first one is, could you explain maybe sort of how it actually works? How does Facebook advertising works? And why this is a particularly different form of political campaigning and why we should pay attention to it compared to like classical <clears throat> leaflets, right? Like what's the main difference? And again, maybe first shortly outline how it actually works because maybe not everybody's familiar with Facebook ads. So Facebook advertising, as, as opposed to leafleting, for example, is much easier and it's much cheaper. And essentially what you do is you can place an ad with some kind of rudimentary targeting, so to age to, to certain locations, and you can place that relatively cheaply. All you, if you're a political party, you set yourself up as an organization, or indeed a campaign organization, you can do the same thing. Yeah, you pay Facebook an amount of money, and depending on the amount of money that you pay to Facebook, that gets targeted in a more or less efficient way. And that might be that you pay dependent on of how many views you want your advert to get, or indeed, if you want to go upscale from that, then how many people then click through. That is the basic way that it works. It is very much on you to choose your targeting mechanism. It's not like you say to Facebook, well, I suppose you do in a way, but it's not like someone at Facebook is then targeting it for you. What you do is you have a sort of computer mainframe in front of you and you're clicking little boxes and then it goes through to to a certain amount of targeting and then you have all this data that is then fed back to you about how effective or otherwise that might be so that's it very basically and what you see politicians doing increasingly and indeed we saw this a lot in the 2019 general election is in the early stages of the election doing a lot of what we call a b testing and that is just almost flooding Facebook with lots of different adverts that look very, very similar, but just testing which ones work the best, which ones get the most engagement. And that's effectively how Facebook advertising works. What that might look like in practice, I'll, I'll give you an example from the first time that I met 
uh, a company called Who Targets Me. If you're interested in these kinds of things, I would certainly recommend any of your listeners to look out for. They know a lot more about this than I do. They essentially try and unpick who is getting targeted and why on Facebook. And when I first went to meet him, he had his the Facebook ad arc, and he showed me So this was when Brexit was the main thing in the news last year, every day, um, which feels like an age ago now. And and what you saw was that the Conservative Party, I think it was when Theresa May was trying to get her deal passed. And they were essentially targeting very different messages at different parts of the population. So you saw past Theresa May's Brexit deal, this will mean that the NHS will function better. And that was, they were paying for that to be targeted specifically at older people. They might say a different message and target that specifically at men, and they would have tested how effective that was. That's essentially how it works. On your second question, why do political parties do this? Frankly, the main reason is it's way cheaper than any other form of engagement. You can fairly effectively target quite a large portion of the population with not much money at all. So it's considerably cheaper and it's much more time effective. So canvassing relies a lot on volunteer labour. Canvassing is the most effective form of political campaigning, but getting everyone out there knocking on doors is incredibly hard. So the main reason that political parties do it is that it's cheaper. There's also an extent to which political parties are like the rest of us, but also they're they're like magpies. They, They sort of see the silver thing and follow the silver thing. And... Online campaigning is the silver thing at the moment. They don't want to be caught behind what other political parties are doing. And you see lots of stuff in the press about how online campaigning changes everything and won Donald Trump the presidency and won the Brexit referendum. And what you don't want to be as a political party is seen as being behind the curve. So there is a certain extent that there's kind of an arms race here where they're plowing money in digital because that is seen to be the effective thing to do. Great. There's increasingly research coming out that tries to investigate the role of social media, as you mentioned, in trying or in actually winning elections, like the work of Helen Margit. And how you describe it, it's pretty much a new form of advertising, a more targeted and therefore a cheaper one and a more efficient one, maybe. But is there a problem with it from a corruption perspective? And if so, which is it? So the first thing that we need to understand is the extent to which the, it is effective as a medium. I think that can get you somewhere towards whether there's a corruption problem here. And I would say that if it is effective as a form of campaigning, then where the corruption comes in is particularly in terms of whether it's used in a way that again bypasses what we would understand as how democracy ought to function. And if that is the case, it becomes a form of misinformation. It becomes a way in which to target particular people with particular messages that are, well, lies, then that is something that becomes a problem. The other way in which I think specifically you might argue or or these linkages at least bear thinking about in terms of whether they are or are not corrupt is whether what we have seen is people using the online world and people using advertising online to actually bypass legislation in different countries and I think this is where you see 
actually something that is actually much more easy to unpick as corruption than perhaps influence in politics because what, what you increasingly see with the online world is I, I spoke about the Electoral Reform Society earlier on but I'll go back to a report that they wrote in 2018-2019 which is that increasingly it's sort of seen as they, they, they released a report called regulating the wild west or thinking about it in terms of the wild west and that is that actually you're seeing a lot of different activity going on online and in ways undermining the law or actually loophole seeking and getting around the spirit of the law. So you might see an increase in foreign, not necessarily donations, but campaigns, campaigns from foreign sources in a system where foreign donations are banned. You might see third parties that you frankly don't, you have absolutely no idea about who they are, where they're coming from and who their funders are. And they, they circumvent various transparency obligations due to the fact that they're considered to be, this is in the United Kingdom, third parties or campaign organisations who are effectively unregulated at election times. And I think that once you get campaigning happening like this, and once you see people moving in that way, or see the money moving in that way, then it certainly represents a corruption challenge. I think we need to reflect about the extent to which it is corruption, but it certainly represents a corruption challenge. And the way that I always try and more functionally describe it is that the way that I think that money in politics works, and it, unfortunately it wasn't me that came up with this analogy, but I do use it all the time, is that money in politics is, is like water, it's hydraulic, and it flows in, in a fairly constant and consistent way. And what you do with legislation is you put up dams, but they can only do so much. They need to be very regularly repaired, but what the water will always do is find a way around the dam and find a way to have some kind of influence in a part of the world or a part of the policy sphere, which, which is relatively unknown. And what we've seen in, with online is that that's where the money has started flowing for various reasons that I suggested. But what we need to understand about this is the ways in which that money is flowing and undermining various systems that we have and undermining what, how we think democracy ought to work and undermining, our, again, our confidence in the democratic process. And I think that that is where corruption might come into it. Are there specific ways that political parties, that campaign organisations and, and all these different actors are using the online world that could be considered to be corrupt. What are the corruption, the, the specific red flags? And I would say that misinformation is one. I would say that the rise in sort of third party organizations is another. The fact that we don't know where a lot of this money is coming from is a third. And all of these things are not necessarily in and of themselves corrupt, but they require a much more precise look at exactly what is going on. And I think that's the question that we should always ask as corruption scholars is not, okay, that's going on, that's corrupt. It's, okay, this is happening. Why might this be considered corrupt? And is this happening in a way in which we need to worry about and is, is something that we would consider to be corrupt? I think that's a great way to wrap this interview. And I think you're raising a lot of interesting questions also in the paper, which relate to that, right? Like who should be responsible for regulating mm -hmm. it in the first place? If we consider it to be a problem, is it big international corporations such as Facebook or is it a, a national uh, oversight body that should somehow regulate it? I think a lot of questions that 
we will continue to think about and discuss. And that note, I would really like to thank you for taking the time. You're very generous with your time and for this uh, very insightful interview. Thank you. Okay, thank you ever so much for having me. Uh, yeah, I hope you both stay, stay safe in this current climate as well. That's it for today already. Thanks for listening to Kickback. Again, apologies for the sound quality on my end. I accidentally activated the wrong microphone on my laptop, but I promise that we will improve the sound quality over the next interviews. As always, we link to all the work mentioned in the episode in the show notes. Go and check them out. If you like what we do, please write us a review or become a Patreon. Every cent goes directly back into the podcast. For example, it looks like we need better recording equipment for telephone interviews. If you want to get an update about Kickback, follow us on Facebook and Twitter under at KickbackGAP. Kickback is a joint production by the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. It is made by Niels Köbis, Matthew Stevenson, Jonathan Kleinpass and me. My name is Christopher Starke. See you next time and most importantly, stay safe out there.